may come as a surprise to you that, uh, that I own nothing. Uh, nothing. I, I own nothing that I can point to and say, that's mine. In fact, when I was dating my wife, she introduced a phrase that uh, has become true in our marriage and uh, more kind of as a, as a joke, because if you know my wife, she's a very selfless person and, and uh, sacrifices for anyone at the, at the drop of a hat. But she used to say something to me in college whenever she would lean over and take some of my French fries. And, and I'm one of those per- people that's like, dude, if you wanted fries, order fries. Like, I'll buy you fries. Just don't eat my fries, right? But she used to say this thing. She used to say this, what's yours is mine. And we grew up with our parents encouraging the reciprocal of that, which is, and what's mine is yours, right? But she twisted it because she would say, what's yours is mine and what's mine is mine. And men, when you get married, you'll learn that that's true. That's true. But there's someone else who says that, that uh, has far more weight to that statement, and that's God. See, when I make the statement, I own nothing, it doesn't mean that I don't have clothes or electronic devices or a home that, or a car that I drive or even a, a relationship, you know, kids, things like that. I'm not saying that I, I, I actually literally possess nothing that's, that's my own from an earthly standard. But from God's point of view, I own nothing. From God's point of view, everything that I have has been given to me, has been entrusted to me. And we talk about a phrase in the Bible and in Christianity called stewardship, which means that, that we are stewards of God's possessions. A steward is someone who cares for the possessions of someone else on their behalf. And the reason why I sit here tonight or stand here tonight rather and tell you I own nothing and God owns everything that I have is because the Bible tells me in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that God has bought me, my very life, with a price. And we just sang about it. And he bought me through the cross. And so I am not my own. I now fully, 100% belong to God. He owns me. And he's a, a good, kind gracious God. And so I'm happy to say, look, he can have everything. And it's a blessing to be able to steward these things, but we need to know how we should be stewarding these things. And when we first come to our text tonight, which is Proverbs chapter six, verses one through 19, we read it and it kind of feels like some of the rest of Proverbs. After you get past chapter 10, Proverbs begins to take on a little bit more of a disjointed uh, kind of little pithy statements here and there, but, but they're not really connected as far as whole chapters go. Proverbs chapter 6 feels that way a little bit, at least at first. But I think the unifying concept that is there is this idea that God has given us everything that we have and wants us to take care of it in a certain way, wants us to live wisely, right? We're talking about that in this whole summer series. Is how do we live wisely the way that God wants us to? And God has given us everything that we have and wants us to live wisely with what we have. In fact, we can even build on the concept from last week when we talked about sex by saying even that, right? He's given us our physical bodies. He's given us relationships. That's a stewardship from God. And he wants us to conduct ourselves wisely in that arena as well. And we're just kind of continuing that with these three areas that Proverbs, that that Solomon is going to touch on in Proverbs chapter six, as again, he's writing to his son saying, son, I want you to live wisely. And you need to understand everything that you have. Remember, this is the son of one of the most wealthy kings that's ever existed. And Solomon is wanting his son to understand what you have is not truly your own. We need to be wise about what we have and what we do with it. So Proverbs chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to go down through verse 19 tonight. But first, we'll start with the first five verses. Solomon says this, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you've given your pledge for a stranger, 
If you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. So he introduces the problem right away in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, if you've put up security for your neighbor or given your pledge for a stranger. He's saying the same thing with both of those, just in a different way there. And that is this. If you've been a co-signer for your neighbor's loan, if your neighbor's saying, hey, you know what? I need a new ride, and this donkey is not cutting it for me, and I went down to the Donkey Max place, and... I looked at their donkeys, and there's a sweet one down there that I want, but I just don't quite have the, the collateral to be able to get the loan I need to get this new donkey. Will you sign for me on this? Right? Or your neighbor saying, hey, I want to get a bigger house across the street, but I, I don't quite have the credit to be able to qualify for the loan. Will you, will you vouch for me financially? Will you be my security? Will you co-sign on this for me and put yourself financially at risk for my possession that I want to get, for my new house, for my new donkey, for my new whatever it may be. He's saying, don't do that, is what he's arguing here. That's dangerous. He says, if, if you've done that, he goes on, he says, you've been snared in the words of your mouth. You've been caught in the words of your mouth. So that's the problem that Solomon's saying, this is not, this is not a good thing. This is unwise. This is foolish to do this. And remember, we're talking about how we should treat what God has provided for us. And he's saying, this is not how we should treat what God has done for us financially. He goes on, he says, so the solution is what? He says, save yourself, verse 3. Then do this, my son, save yourself. That seems extreme. But it's not when we consider the, the risk. For you've come into the hand of your neighbor. In other words, you're not in control anymore. You have vouched financially for somebody, and, and you're depending on them to hold up their end of the bargain. But guess what? If they fail... Why, do, why is there a co-signer on a loan? It's because the bank is going to come after you because they don't have any money. And so he's saying you're in trouble because you're now in the hand of your neighbor. Your neighbor controls your fate financially. He's saying this is a foolish thing. Don't do this. Save yourself. And then look at verse 3. Go, hasten, plead urgently. The, re the repetitiveness there. Go, right? That call to action. Hasten, be quick about it. Plead urgently with your neighbor so that he would, what, release you. He's saying if, if you're in this situation, you need to do everything you can do to get out of this situation. Give your eyes no sleep, your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter. Notice again the risk that he's communicating here. He's saying this is a dangerous position for you to be in. Like a bird from the hand of the fowler. A fowler is one, I guess, who hunts birds. I don't know. I, I'm not a, a bird hunter, but it sounds like it's not a good deal for the bird to be in the hand of the fowler. This is a person who's said to their neighbor, yeah, I'll, I'll put up security for you. I will vouch for you financially, and, and I will enter, enter into a, a, legal, a legally binding contract with you that says, if you fail to hold up your end of the bargain, I will fill in the void financially for you. And Solomon's saying, don't do that. Don't do that, because what you're doing is you're offering to take someone else's money, remember, because we don't own anything. You are taking someone else's money, and that is the creator of the known universe's money, and you are willing to, an offering to put it up for someone else, and, and you're, you're ceding control of that to them. In other words, you can't control whether or not your neighbor, your friend, your family member is going to be faithful to their end of the bargain. Solomon's saying this is not a wise thing to do with what God has provided for you. And students, we need to understand that. 
You need to know that the way that we treat our, our money, our finances, is important to God. It matters because ultimately, at the end of the day, it's not ours. He's given it to us and wants us to be wise with it. So our first point tonight, as I've uh, forgotten that I had a couple of slides here, so let me just zoom through those. I've covered all this. You guys heard it just now, but I just didn't cover it uh, on the slide. Is this, take care with God's provision. Take care with God's provision, okay? God has given you whatever financial resources you have. And, and even if you're out there going, man, I, I don't have much right now. Whatever you have, God has given you. If you're saying, man, I've got, I'm, I'm made because I inherited a trust fund. Well, that trust fund is ultimately yours because of God, not because of your parents or because of your grandparents or because of any other rich family member. What you have, God has given you. And ultimately, it's still his. Now, you may be sitting out there with some alarm bells going off because you may be hearing me tell you, don't be generous with what God has given you. That's not what we're saying here, okay? That's not what I'm saying. The Bible commends our generosity. It says we should be generous people. In fact, in Proverbs, it says this. Proverbs 11, 24 through 25. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Solomon is saying, you're giving what you have, and, and God's blessing you. You're, you're growing richer as you give some away. Another withholds what he should give. So there's a, an obligation there. We should be giving something. We should be generous and only suffers want. The one who says, I don't want to be generous because I'm afraid I'll lose it, he does lose it. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. So there's a biblical principle here for generosity, in, including in, in Proverbs 19, 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. There Solomon saying, if you're a generous person, you are putting God, metaphorically speaking, in your debt because you are giving to the poor. So this is not that we should not be generous people as believers. We should be generous people as believers. But what's in view in chapter six in these first five verses here is not biblical generosity. This is different, okay? Biblical generosity is this. It's wisely employing the resources God has provided to you to meet a defined need with a defined amount. Biblical generosity is wisely using the resources God has entrusted to you to meet a defined need with a defined amount. Okay, Biblical generosity is not writing a blank check on God's behalf. And that's basically what's happening here. You're entering into this financial, this legally binding agreement with your neighbor saying, yeah, I'll, I'll vouch for you so you can get a bigger loan for that. And you're giving up control of money that God has entrusted to you to steward wisely. And now if that person defaults, if they don't pay, if they don't hold up their end of the bargain, you're liable. And that's a bad situation to be in. That's not biblical generosity. In life, you may be tempted to help a friend in a situation like this or a family member. They need you to, to co-sign on a, a loan for a car or a home or a, an advance at work. And look, your heart may go out to that person. And you may be tempted to agree to help thinking, well, it's, it's no big deal. I'll just co-sign. They'll get it. They're a reliable person. They're a trustworthy person. Let me just do this to help them out. But y'all, that is, that is specifically what the Bible is prohibiting us from doing here in Proverbs chapter 6. Be generous with them. Help them out. If, they, if they're down on their, their, their finances and they need help, go grocery shopping for them and fill up their fridge, fill up their cabinets, whatever. If they need to find amount to, to, to be able to make the next car payment, write the check for that amount and hand it to them and say, here, I can help you out with the next car payment. If you have the means to be generous people, be generous people. Just don't be foolishly generous. 
And there's a difference there. Again, biblical generosity is a defined need with a defined amount, and we're meeting that not with our resources, but with God's resources, those things that he's entrusted to us. Again, the danger is when we enter into this type of agreement with someone, we've basically turned that money over that God has given us to take care of to somebody else, to that individual or to their bank or to this company. And we can't be wise with that money anymore. We can't be a good steward of that money anymore. And as other needs pop up that we might want to be generous in in other areas, we can't even use that money to go be generous in those other areas anymore because we've entered into this foolish agreement. Imagine Elon Musk gives you $100,000. That'd be pretty sweet, right? It'd be like a drop in the bucket for him. It'd be like two bucks for him. I don't know how much it is, but it'd be nothing for that guy. So just be like, here's $100,000. But imagine he gave it to you and said, I want you to use this. I want you to use it for your needs. You know, I I want you to use it for some fun. And I also, I want you to use it to be generous to some other people in your life. And now imagine if you took that $100,000 and you said, sweet, I've got a hundred grand. I'm going to go to Vegas and I'm going to put it all on black. And you do, and it shows up red and then that money's gone. And you have to go back to Elon. And he's like, hey, what'd you do with my $100,000? Well, see... I thought I was going to be able to help more people by doubling it or tripling it, and I lost it all in one fell swoop. You think he'd be happy with you? No, right? Because why? Because we, we were foolish with it. We've got to be careful about how we're treating the resources that God has put in our control. Go, hasten, plead urgently with your neighbor to get out of that agreement. The, the phrase plead urgently is it's literally this, rage against your friend for release. That's what that means. And, and we tr- translate it plead urgently because it's a little bit kinder. But that's the passion that, that Solomon is communicating here to his son. Rage to get out of this agreement. It's a serious endeavor. And I'm guessing most of you in this room have not put up security for a friend or a neighbor. If you have, let me encourage you to obey the word of God and to go get out of that agreement as fast as you possibly can, right? But as you think about your future, you are going to come into situations where you might have that opportunity. And I want you to remember Proverbs 6, 1 through 5. As you think about the future, I want you to begin to prepare to to steward well what God is going to entrust you by remembering and beginning to think about whatever you have right now, even if there's only two digits total in your bank account, like no zeros after it, just two digits total in that bank account. Understand that that 20 bucks, that's God's. It's not yours. And he's entrusted it to you. And he wants you to use it. He wants you to use it for him and for his kingdom, for his glory. You remember the parable of the talents, I I assume, from Matthew chapter 25, when the master gives the talents to the servants and then goes away on a journey and comes back and and calls an account. And there's the one that buried the talent and didn't want to lose it, and so he just buried it and didn't use it for anything. And the master says, you're a wicked, you're a wicked servant, right? You're a wicked slave. This is just as wicked, but it's wicked because it's, it's just as foolish. It's just foolish on the opposite end of the spectrum. It's playing fast and loose with what God has given to us instead of being wise and shrewd about how we can be generous with others. And so that first point is that we need to be taking care of what God has provided for us. God has given us things that we need to be wise with what he's given to us. He goes on in verse 6. He says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise without having any chief, officer, or ruler. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest in poverty? 
will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Okay, so in the second section, we see another problem of how we are misusing what God has provided for us. And he identifies the problem here initially by saying, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? Look at verse 9. He's saying, you're, you're not like the ant. We'll get to the ant in a second. He says, you're a sluggard. You're a lazy person. Nobody wants to be called a sluggard, right? We get our English word slug out of that. Nobody's like, dude, I wish I was more like a slug. Slimy, a little slow, kind of a little bit rounder than I am right now. A little icky, a little gross, just hanging out in dirt. Don't like salt very much because it kills me. Nobody wants to be a sluggard. Nobody wants to be a lazy person. How long will you lie there? When will you rise from your sleep? When will you get up? When will you get out of bed? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding in the hands to rest, right? What's, in other words, what's the big deal? It's just a little sleep. I'm just getting some rest, right? I, I, I need my rest right now. I need to, I, I need to put my feet up. I, I need rest before what's in front of me. So let me, just, let me just relax for a little bit. Will you just let me chill for a little bit? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding in the hands to rest. And notice, guys, you may be pushing back on me saying, well, that's not what that means. No, that's what, that, that's what the Bible says right here. It's this, well, well, can't I just take it easy for a minute? I, come on, I'm, I'm just, I'm a college student. How much do you really expect from me? Can't I just rest? Can't I just relax? It's, it's summertime. I need to rest before I go back into school. I need to rest before I, I start my job again. Can't I just chill for a little bit and, and, and can't you back off a little bit? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And what happens? Poverty will come upon you like a robber like a robber, like that. You don't expect it, and it's swift, and it's fast when it happens. And it blindsides you, and want like an armed man. And yeah, this could be financial poverty, right? I mean, if you are not a hard worker, if you don't have a good work ethic, if you don't hold down a job, if you're thinking, well, it's, it's fine, I don't really need to worry about my career right now, I'll figure that out as I go along, then yes, this could be spiritual or, or rather literal poverty, physical poverty that comes upon you, that you're left and all of a sudden you're going, wait, I, 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 don't, have any, I don't have any resources to support me right now. I don't have any finances. I can't find a job that's going to meet my needs. It's going to come up upon you like, like that, like a robber and want, like an armed man. All of a sudden you're not going to be able to rest at all because you're going to be just scraping by to survive. But there's another type of poverty that's more dangerous with laziness, and that is spiritual poverty. If, if we don't do the hard work to grow spiritually, if we are lazy spiritually, then there is a spiritual poverty that will come upon us like a robber and want like an armed man. And, and for some, that's going to mean total spiritual bankruptcy, meaning you've thought that you're fine because you've never done the hard work to do business with God, to, to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and to surrender yourself completely to him, and, and to have that interchange where he takes all of your sin, and you get all of his righteousness, and you are, are not saved. You're just here thinking you're okay because you're comfortable in the church, and you sing songs about Jesus, and everything's good, and we're copacetic, God and I. But there's going to come a day when you're going to stand face to face with Jesus and he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And all of a sudden you're going to understand what spiritual poverty coming upon you like a robber and want like an armed man really feels like. But then there's others of you who are truly in Christ and yet you are experiencing a poverty of sanctification because you are not doing the hard work of growing in Christ's likeness. You are, are, are saved, but man, you are just crawling along 
Like the writer of Hebrews says, you know what? You, you should by now be teachers, and yet I still need to go back and teach you the basic elements. You should be able to eat a T-bone, and, and, and you need milk right now. And there's a, a spiritual poverty that some of you, even as, as Christians, are experiencing right now because you're not doing the hard work. You're the, you're the sluggard spiritually. That's the problem that we're addressing. So what's the solution that he gets to? He says, well, go to the ant. So that's, that's interesting. Go to an insect? Really, Solomon? That's your answer? Yeah. Yeah, go to the ant and, and observe the ant. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having a, a chief officer or ruler. In other words, th- there's no one babysitting the ant saying, okay, now you need to go and do this, and now you need to go and do this, and now you need to go and do this, and now you need to go and do this. Without anybody like that, the ant prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. She's wise because she works hard. And she doesn't have anybody giving her the wake-up call. She doesn't have mom getting her out of bed. She doesn't have her small group leader calling her saying, okay, now it's time to get after your, your daily Bible reading right now. She sets herself to the task at hand and she does it. Because she's wise, because she knows that it's the, the hard work will yield, its fruit will be beneficial. How does this relate to God's provision? Well, it relates to God, God's provision this way. is It's this. You guys have been entrusted with so much by God that, that goes far beyond your finances. You have a mind. You have an education. You have your health. You, you have the word that's been given to you, you, you the, the, your Bible. You've got a job. You've got a family. You've got relationships. You have so much that God has given to you. And what he wants you to do with that is not to be the sluggard, but the ant. Our second point tonight is this. Work hard with God's provision. Work hard with God's provision. Take care of it. Be wise stewards. And we're talking most, mostly financial there. Now we're talking broader than financial. Solomon's saying, look, you want to be wise with what God has provided for you? Work hard with it. Put it to work. Turn a, 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 a profit with what God has provided for you. Again, there's nothing that we possess here, y'all. Nothing that we possess, including our very life and our very breath, that has not been given to us by God. Psalm 139 lays that out very clearly. He formed us in our mother's womb. Right? He knit us together, knows our inward parts. And then as the psalmist goes on to say, as David goes on to say in Psalm 139, he knows the number of days that we will live before we even live a single one of them. That means every day that you have is a gift from God. Every breath that you breathe is a gift from God, including that one right there. And we're not even thinking about it. How many times do you consciously think about taking a breath throughout the day? Probably not often. And yet every single breath time you breathe, God is being gracious to you and giving you that. What are you doing with your breath? How are you working hard with your breath? Really that fundamental? Yeah, that fundamental, that basic. But let's broaden it, right? What are you doing with your time? God has given every single person in this room the same 24 hours in a day. What are you doing with that? Every single person has the same amount of time in this room, but there are vastly different results from how we use our time represented in this room. What are you doing with your time? How about your mind? 
God has given you a mind with synapses and everything else that fire in the way that they do. And he's designed it that way. And he's created it to be able to remember things and store things and, and solve problems and think critically about things. What are you doing with your mind? How are you using that? How are you working hard with what God has provided for you intellectually? Building on that, your education. Whether you are pursuing a traditional education or a trade school or your education is, man, I, I'm training on the job to be better at what I'm doing. Whatever that field looks like to you, what are you doing with it? Are you just trying to get through it to be able to say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm done and now I can move on and, and do things that, I, that I'm, I'm more passionate about? Or are you soaking it up going, okay, I, I need to, to pay attention because God is equipping me to, to work harder so I can better glorify him with the work that I do. What are you doing with your giftedness? If you are a believer, if you are a follower of Christ, then the Bible tells us that you've been given a gift for the, the building up of the body of Christ, for the, the edification of the church. And there is no age limit on that. If you are in Christ, you have a spiritual gift to be used for the building up of the body of Christ. How are you serving the, the church right now? How are you working hard with what God has provided for you in the area of giftedness? Your salvation. What are you doing with your salvation? God has given you Christ. And he saved you so that he can use you for the rest of your earthly life here as his ambassador, as his witness. You have the good news of the gospel of Jesus. That's been given to you. What are you doing with that? Are you working hard with that? Are you telling others about Christ? Are you pointing them to the cross? Are you telling them your testimony? Are you encouraging them and holding out the offer of salvation to them, saying, hey, you look, there's good news. There's, yeah, there's bad news. Dude, you're a sinner. You're, you're pretty messed up, but so am I. Here's the good news. Jesus died for your sins. And you can be forgiven in Christ. Are you working hard with the gift that you've been given of your salvation? Not for it, but with it, right? Your sanctification. I touched on that a minute ago, talking about spiritual poverty. Are you working hard to grow in Christ's likeness? It's part of the whole point of Mission 66, being in the Word of God daily, right? Memorizing God's Word. Are you internalizing it? Are you praying? Every single person at some point in time in their life, I think, don't hold me to that, I don't know, but my guess is every single person at some point in time in their life has struggled with prayer, being consistent, praying more, wanting to pray more, feeling like sometimes their prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling and coming down. You know how to, to get through that is to work harder at it to pray more, to pray through the awkwardness, to pray through the struggles, to piggyback on the prayers of the psalmist, to, to piggyback on the prayers of other believers that have gone before you. Pick up a book of prayers and read those as long as they're good ones. Don't pick up like a, a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel prayer book, but like a good one. Work hard to get through some of that. Work hard at your sanctification your resources. Yes, this also applies to our finances. Are we working hard with what God has entrusted to us financially so that we're not being foolish with those things? Anything you want in this life is going to involve hard work and effort and discipline. Anything that you want in this life. And that message is not being taught to this generation and younger anymore. When my seventh grader last year can retake the same exact test in school as many times as he wants and keep whatever the highest grade that he gets is, that's not doing him any favors. 
this has been a, 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 a crime that has been committed against your generation and younger. This idea that there is an entitlement that, that you are going to have a good and easy and comfortable life. That good things will come to you. They may not. They may not. Your life may be hard. And here's the other thing, y'all. Here's the reality. You want marriage? You want a good, godly marriage? You want a marriage that you are excited about? Guess what that involves? Hard work. It doesn't just happen because I see the, the marriages, they end up in my counseling office that just expect it to happen and they're in there going, we don't understand why we hate each other now. It's because they weren't working hard at loving each other the way that God has called them to love each other. You want a, a good job to be able to provide for a family? That's going to require hard work and discipline. They're not passing out CEO jobs just like, oh yeah, you want one? Sure, here, have one. Family. You want to have a godly family? It requires work. Your kids, you and your wife can love Jesus as long as the day is, and yet if you don't put in the work to disciple your kids and raise them, the world will. And if you are lazy in that, guess what you're going to have? You're going to have kids that are totally rebellious and walking away from you and the Lord. godliness. I'm going to just assume most of you in this room know this, that you're not going to just get closer to God by going to sleep every night going, God, I, I pray that tomorrow I'll love you more. And then just closing your eyes, but not ever doing anything about it to love him more. Hobbies, right? I mean, whatever, nobody's sitting here watching Tiger Woods on TV one day, although nobody's watching him on TV anymore anyways, but another person that's good at a sport, and, and then going, yeah, I'm going to go out and just do that. I'm going to go do that. Right? Like Shohei Otani. Nobody's like, dude, he, that guy, he hits baseballs a long way and throws them really fast. And I want to do that. I'm going to go knock on the angel's front office door and say, I, I need to be a baseball player. I saw Shohei do it. I'm going to do it. It's ridiculous, right? Because you know how much hard work went into getting him where he is. Our hobbies require hard work. Homeownership is going to require hard work. See, none of this is just going to happen to you. Worldliness will happen to you. Worldliness is easy, right? And Jesus told us that. Narrow is the way and hard is the way that leads to salvation. Broad and easy is the path that leads where? To destruction. So if you don't want to put in the hard work, there's another option for you. It, just, it doesn't end well. It doesn't end well. There's a book by Kevin DeYoung called Just Do Something. Just Do Something. And in this book, he has a couple of quotes that I think are worth our consideration. He says this. He says, passivity is a plague among Christians. It's not just that we won't do anything. It's that we feel spiritual for not doing anything. So now we're hijacking laziness and trying to spiritualize it. We imagine that our inactivity is patience and sensitivity to God's leading. Well, I'm just waiting for God to reveal what he wants me to do. At times it may be, but it's also quite possible that we're just lazy. When we hyper-spiritualize our decisions, we can veer off into impulsive and foolish decisions. That's when we're like, well, I think God wants me to go to Vegas and gamble everything that I have. Because God's telling me to do that. That's the, the, the one extreme. 
But he highlights the other extreme when he says this, but more likely as Christians, we fall into the endless patterns of vacillation, meaning wavering back and forth between our decisions, indecision, I don't know what to do, I can't do anything, and ultimately regret. No doubt selfish ambition is a danger for Christians, but so is complacency, listless wandering, and passivity that pawns itself off as spirituality. Y'all, I, I can't commend this book enough to you for where you are at right now in life. It's worth the purchase. Kevin DeYoung, just do something. He goes on later in this same chapter. He says this, so go marry someone, provided you're equally yoked and you actually like being with each other. Those are important caveats, by the way. Go get a job, provided it's not wicked. Go live somewhere in something with somebody or nobody. I love that. Go live somewhere in something with somebody or with nobody. But put aside the passivity and the quest for complete fulfillment and perfectionism and the preoccupation with the future. And for God's sake, start making some decisions in your life. Don't wait for the liver shiver. If you are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you will be in God's will. So just go out and do something. If I could say amen a million times over, I would to that statement. Because what he's talking about here is he's talking about this idea that, that, that we as, as passive, we as the sluggards in today's culture and society, we have spiritualized our laziness. We've, we've cloaked laziness under the words of, well, I just, I'm waiting on God to reveal what his will is for me in this area. Okay, how's, how's that going to happen? De Young in this book, he talks about the fact that that in non-moral decisions, the Bible is relatively silent. Meaning when, when sin is not in question, you're not going to find chapter and verse. So if you're going, should I go to this college or this college? There's, there's no verse for that. Should I marry this guy or I think this guy's cute over here? There's no verse for that. Provided, again, you're equally yoked and you like each other. I, I don't know if I should buy the white car or the black car. Guess what? At the end of the day, guys, God doesn't care what color your car is. That, that's all. I can't believe you would say that. He doesn't. So in these non-moral decisions, we sit back because we are either lazy or we're terrified of making the wrong decision. And we cloak it in the guise of spirituality saying, well, I'm just wait, I, God is, I need wait, I'm waiting on God's will to be revealed for my life on what I should do right now. So that's why I'm taking the fifth victory lap in at Saddleback. That's why I haven't moved out of mom and dad's house yet, is I just, I'm waiting on God's will for where I should go to school and what I should do. That's why I haven't said yes to any of these guys, because God just hasn't told me that this is the one I'm supposed to marry. Guess what, ladies? He's not going to. He's not going to audibly speak to you and tell you, yes, go marry him. And that's why DeYoung says, just do something. If... You're seeking after God's righteousness and God's kingdom. Just do something. Work hard with God's provision. Whatever your dreams and ambitions are, y'all, there's no dream genie waiting to just hand it to you. It's often put off this way, but it's not necessarily a humble thing for us to say, well, I'm, I'm just waiting on God's timing and direction in my life. Because again, sometimes we're just hiding our own laziness. Sometimes we're just cloaking our own sinful fears and anxieties 
instead of trusting the Lord and working hard with what he's provided for us. Are you more ant or are you more sluggard? Verse 12, section 3. A worthless person and a wicked man goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. With perverted heart, he devises evil, continually sowing discord. The winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger is communicating to somebody who's dishonest, subversive, like you can't trust them. They're underhanded. They're... <laughs> Slimy, if that makes sense. Maybe it doesn't, but it does in my mind. Therefore, this person, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes and a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies in one who sows discord among brothers. So in the third section, the problem he identifies is this. There's a worthless person, a wicked man who goes about with crooked speech. Like I said, this is the, the divisive. This is the deceptive person. He's winking. He's signaling with his feet like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Come over here. He's pointing with his fingers, trying to deceive or be underhanded in his dealings. And with perverted heart, he devises, he plans, he plots evil. And he continually is sowing discord among other people that he encounters. Therefore, calamity is going to come upon him Suddenly, in a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. But the problem continues because he says, look, there's six things that the Lord, what? Hates. Six things the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. He hates haughty eyes, prideful eyes, eyes that judge other people out of a heart of pridefulness and arrogance. He also hates a, a lying tongue. Somebody who intentionally deceives other people. He also hates hands that shed innocent blood. Violence against the innocent. He also hates a heart that devises wicked plans. A heart that sits in its secret places and plots when it will get to sin again. He also hates feet that make haste to run to evil. There's no battle against temptation. There's an embracing of temptation. There's a hastening towards temptation. And he hates a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. So how could we summarize the problem as he lays it out here in this last section? The problem is this. This is a, a divisive and dishonest duplicity. It's, it's a person that is all about themselves. It's a person you can't trust because this is a person that you know in every single one of your interactions and dealings with this person, really all they're out for is, is themselves. They're looking out for number one, and number one is themselves. What's the solution? Well, it's implied, although it's not explicitly stated here, and the solution is to repent and to stand guard against these things. That's why Solomon lists them. Hey, there's seven things that the Lord considers an abomination. It hates, Right? Here they are. Why does he list them out? So his son can know what they are and guard himself against them. This is the, the foolish person who lives only for himself. 
does whatever it will take to bring more gain to himself. This is the person who is not satisfied with the provision that God has already given to him, to bring it back to what our thread is here with the provisions that God has given to us. This is someone who always wants more than what God has already provided. And so they're doing everything that they possibly can to get more. The solution to that, y'all, is contentedness in what God has provided. Point number three tonight is be content with God's provision. Be content with God's provision. And I'll admit, I'm, I'm flanking this point a little bit. In other words, it's, it's, I'm, I'm drawing the implication out of the passage a little bit more, but I believe it's there. I mean, look at the seven things and how many of those have to do with the, the self-promotion, the self-advancement of the individual. Haughty eyes, pride, right? Pride is about, I need to be better than the other person. I need my reputation to go up at the expense of others. A, a lying tongue. We lie to preserve ourselves in our own comfort or to get more for ourselves, to increase our comfort. Hands that shed innocent blood. Acts of violence are committed for what reason? Because we feel justified in doing that. To make ourselves feel better or to take something that that person had. A heart that devises wicked plans. Again, it's all about what do I want? What are my desires? Not what does God want. But what are my desires? What do I want? I need more, right? Feet that make haste to run to evil. There's the temptation. Oh, that looks attractive to me. Forget that God has called me to battle and fight temptation. I'm, I'm going to run towards temptation. A false witness who breathes out lies, again, is about saving their own skin at the cost of someone else. And one who sows discord among brothers. Man, if they're fighting... I can be the good guy because they're not, I'm not the problem. They're mad at each other, and I'm, I can be the good guy and just side with whoever I want to side. I'm going to sow discord and cause div- division. What are those things all about at the end of the day? They're all about us and us getting more, more comfort, more money, more security, more, more ego, whatever it is. But it's about us looking at what God has given to us and provided for us and saying, yeah, that's, that's nice and that's cute and all, God, but that's not enough for me to just contentedly serve you. I mean, the, the solution to this, right, is Philippians chapter 2, which you'll talk about in small groups, but it's, it's to follow the model of Christ, which is the, the opposite of these seven things. And in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, James writes this. He says this, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. But you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James is identifying what what Solomon is identifying here. He's saying the the root of so much division and divisiveness and fights and quarrels is a self-centeredness. That needs to be put off. We need to be content with what God has provided for us. That's the the solution to this, to cultivate this heart of contentment. Instead, to learn to be satisfied with with what God has, has given to us, to battle temptation, to covet or lust or steal or lie or deceive by reminding ourselves of the good gifts that God has provided for us, starting with Christ. And honestly, I don't think we're going to need to go beyond that one. Psalm 119, 36 Psalm 119, 36, David says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. 
Incline my heart, God, to your word and not to selfish gain. Contentment. Being content with God's provision. What does that actually look like? You guys remember Tim Tebow? Yes. I mean, he's still like alive and stuff, but back when he used to play uh, football and besides the Tebowing, kneeling thing, he used to, to wear eye black and he used to put a verse on his eye black under here out of Philippians chapter 4. Verse, you guys have seen it on other people. 4.13, I can do all things through what? Through Christ who strengthens me. It's like Steph Curry's like, dude, I can dunk a basketball through Christ who strengthens me. Tim Tebow's like, I can be a tight end in the NFL through Christ who strengthens me. Except he can't. But because that's not what that verse means. The verse didn't fail because Tim Tebow's not the greatest football player on the face of the earth, right? Because that's not what it means. Because in the context, you know what Paul's talking about? He's talking about contentment. Because in chapter 4 of Philippians, he says this right before that. He says, you know what? I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, verse 10. Now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity in the past. In other words, to help support me financially, he's talking about here. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. In other words, Paul's saying, I know how to have nothing and I also know how to have much to abound. In, every, in, ev- in any and in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, Paul's saying what gives me so much confidence to go through the next day is, is the, the, the power of Christ within me. He's provided everything that I need, whether I have a lot or I don't have much at all. I'm content because I've got Jesus. That's ultimately where we need to get, y'all. That's the greatest expression of our contentment. Because that's the greatest thing that Christ, that God has provided for us. Again, we're talking about provision. We started by talking about finances. Hey, don't sign for your neighbor's donkey. Be wise with your finances. Be generous, but be wisely generous, right? Take care of God's provision. Then we, we talked about, man, we got to work hard with God's provision. He's given us so much. What are we doing with it? We don't want to be the sluggard. We want to be the ant. And then we're saying, you know what? We also need to be careful that we are content with God's provision. Because we don't want to be like this wicked, worthless person at the end of the chapter who's only out for their own self-gain. Now, the key to all of this is beginning to reframe how we view ourselves in our lives. This is not my life. Because why? Because I've been bought with a price. You know how that verse continues? Therefore glorify God in your body. You've been bought with a price for a purpose. What's the purpose of why God bought you for himself? Is that you would glorify him. And so everything that we have is to be lived wisely for the glory of God. And what gives you that perspective, and maybe you're struggling to get there, maybe you've been struggling to track with some of the stuff tonight, you know, what gives you that perspective is being transformed by Christ, by the gospel. Because this is not a natural way of thinking. The natural way of thinking, it wants to throw off all of this stuff and say, well, that doesn't sound like a recipe for success. That sounds like a recipe for you to be walked all over and to just work hard your whole life for what? 
But y'all, here's, here's the thing. When we talk about being saved, the Bible says that, that, that we are born again. We are made new. The old is gone. The new has come. And that involves a, a renewal of our mind and the way that we think about things too. And so if we are in Christ, we will embrace this mindset that says, you know what, God, everything I have is yours, starting with me. The way that you're breathing right now, the synapses that are firing to cause your eyes to twitch and move and blink, without even you thinking, those are gifts from God. Even at that basic level, that means everything else that you have is a gift from God. What are we doing with it? Are we living wisely with it or are we living foolishly with it? Let's pray. God, we are thankful for all of the good gifts that you provided for us. As James even says, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above with whom there's no variation or shadow or change. Lord, we're, we're thankful even for that reality, that you are who you say you are in your word today and tomorrow and for years to come. You will never change. And we're grateful and thankful that we are secure in Christ, that we have a salvation that is eternal, that we are, are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit and that we can never lose that gift. Lord, we want to be faithful with everything that you've done for us. We have been bought with a price. So Lord, we want to glorify you with everything that we do. And so help us to, to think wisely about our lives, think wisely about everything that you've entrusted to us and what we should be doing with it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.